Welcome to CitySpeak with Max Masuda-Farkas. The New York City Department of Education is like a city unto itself. The largest school system in the United States, it represents more than 1,800 separate schools, serving over 1 million students across the five boroughs and operating on an annual budget of $38 billion. Although my guest today was one of the millions of students who passed through the New York City public school system, he himself never would have thought that one day he would be charged with the responsibility of managing it. In his words, the world he grew up in was one of kids playing in the streets, stickball, watching the Yankees. Yet it is hard to think of anyone who more embodies the promise of the public school system. Joel Klein's credentials speak for themselves. A graduate of Columbia University and Harvard Law School, clerk to the late Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell, assistant attorney general for the antitrust division under President Bill Clinton, and of course, chancellor of the New York City Department of Education under Mayor Mike Bloomberg. The secret to his accomplishments was something he says he learned early on as a student in Queens in public school. What was it? Find out on today's episode of City Speak. CitySpeak is sponsored by Batoni Architects, an integrated practice of architecture and interior design dedicated to creating and defining the spaces in which we live. With expertise in residential and commercial projects, Batoni Architects works in collaboration with clients to design their futures. To learn more, visit Batoni Architects. That's B-I-T-T-O-N-I architects.com. Joel Klein, welcome to CitySpeak. Thank you. It's good to be here, Max. You are a born and bred New Yorker. You grew up in Queens. You attended public high school there and eventually made the long trek to Morningside Heights for college. What was the New York of your childhood like and did it have an influence on the work you'd later pursue in education and beyond? The New York of my childhood, now you're talking about the 50s and early 60s, and it was a time vastly different. From now, I mean, if you ask me two or three things that capture that stickball, I could tell everything about a person by how many sewers he could hit a stickball. Right? That was the world I grew up in. Kids playing in the streets, kids partying in the evenings, socially trying to learn how to play the games and so forth. It was a time, I think, when the Yankees couldn't lose and the Dodgers and Giants had left. So that was all good for a Yankee fan like me. And for me, I lived in public housing in Astoria and the Woodside houses there. And I went to a local school in which I thought the education was superb. Teachers there, I thought, were people who really challenged me to think hard. And who, even though I'd come from a family where people hadn't been to college and so on, really had high aspirations and high goals for me. And did that influence me? You bet it influenced me because it had to influence teachers at Bryan High School and Junior High School 10. I wouldn't have had the opportunities. Morningside Heights would have seemed to me like the Soviet Union. So far away, I couldn't <laughs> imagine I'd ever find it. Teachers helped me figure out how to navigate that path. So yeah, it had a big influence on me. And before we dive into your tenure as a New York City School Chancellor, I'd be remiss not to have you speak at least briefly on the long and decorated career you had leading up to that appointment, from clerking on the Supreme Court to serving as Deputy White House Counsel under President Clinton to becoming Assistant Attorney General of the Antitrust Division. What 
in short, was the road that led you ultimately to becoming New York City school chancellor? It's a great question. It's one I think about a lot. I mean, because it's not an obvious career path. And, you know, it looks like a guy not only couldn't hold a job, but couldn't even stay in a particular area. <laughs> I think the thing that did that for me is I've been so fortunate that out of nowhere, opportunity comes your way. You know, I got to know Bill Clinton down at Renaissance Weekend. I get invited. Clinton is down there to Governor Arkansas. I get to know him. All of a sudden, Ruth Ginsburg is getting nominated for the court. I'm handling her confirmation. I end up Deputy White House Counsel. So the right guy at the right time in the right place. Second of all, and this is kind of me, I just think if something interests you, go for it. Somebody could say, you look at my resume, I promise you I'm not on the short list of people to be chosen for chancellor. <laughs> a lot of people on Mike's team even thought, why this guy? But my view was, I cared deeply about it. I knew what education had done for me. I know how to bring great people to the problem. I know what my strengths are, my weaknesses are, where I need help. And so it all made sense to me. And fortunately, I've had extraordinary opportunities working for remarkable people. If you think of just the three people I mentioned there, Lewis Powell, for whom I clerk, who in many ways is truly a remarkable human being. A story I want to tell you, because I think about it today with Stephen Breyer leaving the Supreme Court and how the court has changed. But Lewis Powell, Bill Clinton, Mike Bloomberg, those are people, remarkable people who are kind enough and generous enough to me to say, give it a shot. So I did. It's a remarkable story. And only more remarkable is, I think, your tenure as chancellor. So let's discuss that. On this podcast, we talk to many people whose impact on big cities is immediately obvious. Urban planners plan our cities, architects design them, developers build them. But it seems that an enormous force, which is less obvious, but perhaps just as powerful, and which sometimes actually, I would say, operates something in the shadows, are educational institutions, teachers, school districts. Would you agree with that assessment? And more generally, what, in your view, is the role of public education in the political ecosystem of American cities? It's in the shadows. Sometimes it's out in the shadows. But it's a critical variable. Think about it this way. You're a young family, right? New York, if I'm a young family, New York is the city you want to be. It's got the most culture. It's got incredibly interesting people. It's got theater. It's got so much going on. It's so rich in opportunity. But you got to get an education for your kids. Now, you know, if you're a rich guy like you and you're very successful, you figure it out, you go to private school. But for a lot of people, you can't. So the schools become the piece that I think becomes the gate. If you can make that work for your kids, the rest is going to work for you. The jobs are great and so forth. And so education and public education becomes a key issue. And also for a lot of people, and certainly something that I think is important, they want their kids to go to public education. It goes to your question about what is the role of public education. And I would say it's two things. It's first, it's the equalizer. It gives a kid like me and a lot of kids who weren't born with a golden spoon in their mouth, gives them a shot to sit here and talk to you tonight, which is because of education, because of teachers in Queens. And the second function is, the function that I wanted to talk about that Justice Powell taught me so much about, which is 
meeting people who are different and learning to listen, to appreciate, and even when you disagree, mm. try to think about is there something going on there? And so there's a story, if I can tell you. It sticks with me. I mean, it's been 50 years now, probably. One day, Justice Powell come back from the pension, it was a tax case. And he happened to be seated next to Thurgood Marshall, who was closer into the center, but Powell is next to him. In the tax case, Marshall leans over to Powell. He says, you know, Lewis, he says, I don't know what they're talking about. I have no idea. He said, I'm going to give you my vote on this case. And Lewis said, well, thank you, Thurgood. I appreciate that. At which point, Marshall leans over and says, and you know, when we get a civil rights case, you don't know what they're talking about. You want to give me your vote. And so Powell comes back to Chambers. He tells me a story. He says, you know, Thurgood is right. And I think it's interesting because Powell was the one guy in Bakke out of nine. He has to decide about the importance of diversity as a way to learn. In other words, it was a different lens. And I think here he was a man post 65 years old. And so to me, part of what public education is all about is to kind of get out of your comfort zone. Start to meet at a young age with people in different experiences, different colors, different national origin. That's what's really a great opportunity which public education supplies. And I think it's a vital function. There's a paradox, I think, inherent in the public education system in the context of large cities which is that on the one hand, I would say large cities are rightly known as hubs of economic opportunity. It's places you go to get a job, to start a business, to make dreams come true. But on the other hand, an unfortunate stereotype is that in big cities, the quality of education, which is itself a really strong determinant of economic success, is often inadequate or at worst failing at times. How, in your view, did cities come to have that reputation? I would put it this way. It's not an inaccurate representation. It's just not sufficiently nuanced. And I want to explain what I mean by that. I think people go, it's a good school system, a bad school system, a failing school system. Nobody goes to school in a system. You go to school in a school, right? Mm. So New York, it may be a system that overall is not getting great results. But there are schools that are knocking the leather off the ball. Some of the best schools in the world are public schools in New York City. So the real question is much more a question of why is it so uneven? You get high schools that graduate 100% of their kids, and you get high schools that graduate 40% or 30%. And that, I think, is a problem that has to be looked at squarely in the eye. Because if you care about equality, if you care about opportunity, the kids with the greatest needs are getting the crummiest education. That's just the fact. So people who live on Fifth Avenue, I don't stay up late worrying about their kids' education. God bless them. They can worry about it. They can educate the kid at home. They can send them to Spence, whatever they want to do. I'm not knocking them. But what I do worry about, a lot of kids in the South Bronx, many of whom came here as immigrants to America, if they don't get a good education, where are they going? Now, the question you want to answer is, why is that happening? It happens because the school system doesn't reward the right things. Mm. All things being equal, if you're a great math teacher, it's just easier to teach on Fifth Avenue than it is to teach in the South Bronx. And so if you get paid the same, you have the same security, you have everything the same, 
people want to go where kids are just easier to teach. And so you don't reward the challenge. You don't reward excellence. You don't incentivize people to go out there and tackle the big and tough assignments. When that happens is you see kind of negative brain drain toward those who are the more fortunate and the more favored. And that's the problem. It's not that education across the city is no good. It's that education for the kids who need it most are basically not getting remotely what they need. And we have to tackle that problem honestly. So knowing then that one of the main problems, as you've articulated, that besets education is this unevenness, what were some of the solutions that you pursued during your time as chancellor? So the first thing I pursued is inherent in all this what I'm saying. You go out tonight for dinner. If I told you there's only one restaurant you could eat in every night, you'd go nuts. You know, so people like choices. Why do they like choices? Because you may like sushi and I may like pizza. We're not going to find a restaurant we can go to together, right? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to schools, again, my problem is the people who don't have the money. People have the money, they can go wherever the hell I want. So the first thing we try to do is create a much more robust choice system. Bring in charter schools. Let them compete. No charter school has a catchment area. They got to earn their kids. So that created, a, for the first time in community psychology, when I started, there was no choice. You went to PS11, PS97, whatever it was, and if you lived in that catchment area, you didn't want to go there, you, you had no choice. Now you have 20, 30, 40 charters up there. You can look at some of those charters, focus more on curriculum, some focus more on leadership, so you have choice. That's the one. Empowering parents and families, and as kids get older, kids, really important. Second thing we did, there is massive, big high schools, high schools with 3,000 kids and a 30% graduation rate. These were kids who came to high school two, three, sometimes more years behind. Some kids who still had English language learning challenges. We took those, we got a lot of money from Bill Gates. We took those and we broke them from 3,000 into six schools or seven schools or 400 or 500. More intimate, 100 in a class each year classroom of 25 each, give the kid a chance to get to know the teacher, the teacher get to know the kid. Handle me in the face of challenge is not a winning form. So you want to know your people, know your kids. You want to feel what Martin Buber calls the I-thou relationship. There's a kind of humanity of intimacy that facilitates the incentives, that facilitates the learning that becomes important. So we did that. It was just an article literally yesterday by Jay Matthews in the Washington Post. Here we are. It's been 10, 12 years since Bloomberg left office. And they're still writing about those small schools because they almost doubled the graduation rate by doing that. So those were some of the key things that I think had big lasting changes. Lately, I think an increasingly broad section of American society has become aware of just how difficult it is to build new housing in cities since the obstacles to new construction often manifest in the exorbitant costs of housing, as we know. What I find interesting is that a similar phenomenon exists in the education context where opening a new school can be a Herculean task. And as you just alluded to, I think under your leadership, New York City opened something in the order of 600 new schools 
in 12 years. How difficult was that? And how did you manage to accomplish such a feat? Yeah, we try to have all 32 teeth have a root canal in one day. <laughs> Mild in comparison. It's not opening the school. It's shutting the school. Hmm. I would get people that went to Lafayette or Tilden back in the day. And they had no idea that the graduation rate was appalling. But if I was going to close that and replace it with smaller schools, they would go nuts. That was their school. And everybody loves their school. So, yeah, it's hard. The unions hated it. Why did they hate it? Because the teachers who had a guaranteed tenure at that school now had to find a new school and get hired. And the ones who really weren't very good or weren't working hard would have a challenge. So all the things that you would want to encourage, like merit, like creativity, like innovation. I mean, hell, if you're in a school with a kid with 30-degree graduation for the school, there's only two conclusions you can come to. Either these kids are useless or the school ain't worth it. Now, the first hypothesis, history proves to be wrong. Those same kids in a different school perform differently. I showed this to people time and time again. So if that's true, then let's get off our butt and start doing the hard work with doing something different. But you do the same old song. So that was the theory. And if you closed it, you got a chance to reopen one year at a time. I mean, Gates gave us a lot of money for this. One year at a time. So you were able to scale gradually, hire five teachers at one time rather than 50, and create a different kind of culture and environment. That's what it takes. Now, is it difficult? Sure, it's difficult. But somebody tell me the alternative. Everybody would say, well, just throw money at the problem. Look, we need a lot of money to educate kids. But money is not what this is about. New York spends $30,000 a year on a kid. It's about trying to think differently when something isn't working, about what needs to change to make it work. Any discussion now about public education in cities would, I think, be incomplete without reference to the seismic changes brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. There is just so much that can be discussed here, but I'd like to focus on the extraordinary growth of online learning tools because I read that you were always a very strong proponent of the use of technology in education. So how lasting do you think these changes are to education? And do you think the role of the physical school in cities will change? I sure hope not. I believe in technology, but I don't believe in technology in terms of displacing teachers with online learning. I believe in technology and empowering teachers. So I'll come back to that. I think the classroom, the school is so vital to what education is about. I just gave you a long riff about getting to know people who are different, starting early in life to start to think about the value of diversity in terms of content of ideas, in terms of different experiences. That doesn't happen on a Zoom call. I taught a class for a friend down at Tulane recently on Zoom. And it's just a different experience. Look, like you got to do it during COVID. I, I'm not knocking it, but it, it doesn't work in terms of an enduring educational system. So I think that the sooner we get kids back inside the classroom, the better it's going to be. The people I worry about, kids who, when they went to school, had a hard time learning at the level they need to learn. Kids who grow up in high poverty communities, now they can't even go to school. So 
that, that's a very scary problem. Where I think technology can be helpful is giving teachers the tools to enrich the classrooms. You can bring visual objects into a classroom like you never could before. You can have kids work in groups online in a way you never could. So give the teachers all the tools, all the aids, all the apps, and all of the curriculum dynamics. But trust me, a school that's not built around the teacher is not going to succeed in education. We've spent a lot of time today talking about your past, but I'd like to close on the present day. Today, you serve as Chief Policy and Strategy Officer at Oscar Health. What has your role been there and how do you situate it in the context of your long and varied career? So my role at Oscar Oscar has been a highly innovative health insurance company. And if you want to know the pantheon of problems as I see them in America, domestically, education is number one and healthcare is number two. Healthcare is a different problem. It's not that we don't have decent healthcare. We don't have affordable healthcare. Right now, we're the only major country, industrialized country, spending almost 20% of our GDP. And so what Oscar's trying to do by empowering consumers is really change the delivery system. And I've been heavily involved in that. And I have to say, it's just been a hell of a ride. Really good people, really fun people. And I've learned a tremendous amount. It goes again to what I was saying about technology. No app is going to treat me, but an app can help others treat me better. And that's in no small measure what the Oscar model is all about. Joel Klein, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Max. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to City Speak with Max Masuda-Farkas. City Speak is produced in partnership with Urbanized Media, with music and sound production by Greg Gordon-Smith and Source Code Creative Media. Be sure to visit urbanize.city, now featuring commercial real estate news in Atlanta, Austin, Chicago, Detroit, LA, and New York.